Drilling fluids touch just about everything in the drilling process. We're here to deconstruct the drilling process and drilling fluid concepts to provide a deeper understanding of our industry. In each episode, we'll share information, talk to interesting people, and maybe share a few stories along the way. Welcome to The Flow Line, a production of AES Drilling Fluids, brought to you by Matt Offenbacher and Justin Gautier. And we're back. Welcome to another episode of The Flow Line. I'm here with my lovely co-host, Matt Offenbacher. Matt, how are you doing this lovely morning? You know, it's good to be lovely. It's a pretty lovely morning. And Mm -hmm. I got some excellent listener feedback for the past couple of days. We had our engineering meetings. Yes. And it's weird when you get up in front of people and talk and like, I didn't really introduce myself like I should have. I just sort of like jumped. I was like ready to talk. Yeah. And then like during one of the breaks, somebody's like, hey, are you the guy on the podcast? <laughs> and I was like, yeah. And they're like, oh, that's, a, you know, I learned a lot from that. You know, thank you. And it was like, oh, cool. And a couple of people like, oh, that's that voice. Like, no kidding. And it was one of those like, I probably should have mentioned that when I like halfway introduced myself. Yeah. And then, so it was like two days of engineering meetings. Then... I flew in late last night. I get home at like 9.15 or something, mm. open my phone, text message from a friend who isn't even in oil and gas anymore. And he sends a screenshot, really enjoy this episode. And it was no the kidding. episode with my dad. Yeah. And I was like, so I took a screenshot of that to send to my dad because, yeah. look, if you haven't listened to that episode, you should. And if you have, say something really nice that I can take a screen cap and send to my dad because he loves that sort of affirmation. Of course. I would imagine, you know, that point in your career and now that he's you know retired and living the good life, it's like he's leaving a legacy, you know what I mean? And so becoming on the podcast is part of it. And if people can appreciate it and share their feedback to him, I think it, yeah, probably makes the world a difference to him. So yeah, if you're out there and you've listened to it, I don't know which episode it is. Remind everyone what your father's name is. So the face. Larry. Larry, so that's it's the right. Larry episode. I think it's 180. Okay. Yes. Any public or direct affirmation of Larry (laughs) is much appreciated. I think he felt really good about that when he got some feedback from people and everything. So yeah, no, that was fun. I really enjoyed talking to him and just someone who's got the experience and yeah, who lived in a totally different era of the oil and gas industry than I did. It's cool. It's kind of a flash from the past. Matt, you mentioned engineering meetings. Again, I think this is one of the years I wasn't able to make it, but every year I did, it was a great turnout. It was great to get in front of the engineers. What was the feedback and maybe outline kind of an agenda for something like that in case someone has never attended one? So, you know, our engineering manager, Chris, puts all that together and, you know, it's really an important opportunity to connect with I mean, look, if you're a manager, when you're on the rig, you're on the rig. And when you're going home, you want to go home. You don't go shoot the breeze in the office that often unless you need, you know, you're on the way to pick something up or whatever. Yeah. And so this was a time like everybody gets an extra day. They all sit down in a group and it's not just like the important messaging, but it's updates on new technology. It's even HR spoke and kind of presented some important things to keep in mind. Mm. I talked a little bit about the operating cycle, just anything that we're like, kind of get everybody keyed in on things we're working on or priorities. But most importantly, I wanted to be there. I made it, I've had a really hectic schedule, but I I really wanted to be there because I just wanted to hear what all of our engineers had to say. I mean, the fact is they are the front line. Like, we don't accomplish anything without them. And so if they need something or if there's something that we could do to serve them better, I want to hear it. Yeah. So it was cool to, you know, faces with names and Mm -hmm. talk to a few of them. And, you know, some are new and really excited to be part of AES for, you know, having worked for other companies for a number of years. And others have been with us for a long time. They've been doing a great job with some tough situations. And so that was just really special. 
it's under the framework of better communication and face-to-face and that sort of thing. But yeah, I think really the big takeaway is I hope that everybody feels more connected to the organization. That's kind of what I took away from it, but I'm, I'm probably the wrong guy to ask as far as impressions. I think that the engineers appreciated it and enjoyed being brought in to be included on a lot of this stuff. Well, hopefully, again, and to your point, I mean, you made a lot of good points. The first one is like our number one asset is our mine engineers. I mean, we could have all the fancy equipment in the lab and all the brains behind everything. But at the end of the day, if you don't have solid mud engineers, the quality of service is not going to be there and you can't just sustain a high level of performance at the rig. And that's what, at the end of the day, operators want performance. And of course, economics make a lot of it. But if you're performing at a high level, likely you're hitting your economic goals. But again, Huge shout out to all the mud engineers who were able to attend. And I challenge anyone out there that was there, send some feedback. I mean, we always say, oh, if you have questions, this and that, but I mean, and not necessarily for the flow line, but reach out to your supervisor and reach out to us even, you know, again, like whether it be LinkedIn or at the flow line at aesfluids.com or at the flow line podcast at aesfluids.com. Uh, yeah, just let us know what you thought about them. And, and again, any constructive feedback is always welcome. And, you know, I don't know if we had anyone on the podcast as a guest that can kind of represent the engineering side. I mean, we've bugged Chris about it and he likes to talk a lot, but I think maybe when you get him behind a microphone, he turtles up a bit. So I'm calling him out. He needs to come on. So if anyone knows Chris, bug him and, and try to get him to come on so he can share his story and, and just a little bit about what he thinks. And it, yeah. uh, it would, it'd be kind of neat because obviously it's engineering is like the core of what we do. And to have someone like Chris, who's been around that world for pretty much his entire career, it'd be cool to hear from. So, but no, appreciate you sharing that, Matt. And let's move on to the topic of the day. Today's going to be a little more chemistry heavy. So this will be good to brush the dust off of my chemistry brain, which is pretty limited to begin with. But Matt, let's talk about esters. I think that term gets flown around from people who think they probably know more than what they actually do. So hopefully we can dive in and educate people on this topic. Yeah. So esters, well, the very short of it, to some degree, it's probably easier to talk about how they're used. But esters are a reaction between what's called a carboxylic acid or an acid and an alcohol. And that's not the special part about it, I would say. So you can use that reaction. You can use effectively have a base oil. We use them in lubricants. So they have a number of applications. They like to stick to metals, which is good for lubricant properties. Right. And there's a lot of different acid, a lot of different esters. But basically, you think about an acid, and it's capable of, you know, think of hydrochloric acid, HCl. Well, it has that proton, that H, okay? Then we have something that can react with the alcohol is going to have a hydroxyl, OH. So... Let's put those two things together, and what I get is I get water, H2O, and then the other stuff that went together, the other components of the acid and the alcohol, and that gives me my ester. So, and the cool thing about these, or one of the things that's a big draw with these is that they're naturally derived. So you can make these using seed oils, vegetable oils, lots of bio-based type things. So the green aspect is very high. One example, I just kind of wrote one down, but like, you start with palmitic acid derived from palm oil. Okay. Add it, blend it with methanol. You react it and you get this thing called methyl palmitate, which is your ester, and you have that water. So now you have a bunch of this ester you could put to work as a base oil, a lubricant, what have you. And there's a bunch of different ones, but that reaction is important. One, there's like an oxygen group there, so it's readily biodegradable. But the other thing is this conversion isn't like 100%. And so you're still going to have a little bit of residual alcohol, which can be okay, depending on the alcohol you chose. Mm. 
one of the challenges is you have something that's readily biodegradable. And the problem with readily biodegradable, like the good thing is it biodegrades, right? right? The bad thing is it's got this vulnerability that helps it break down. And in drilling environments, we have a lot of ways to break things down. So we'll unpack that a little bit. But esters in general, think about that, you know, acid with an alcohol, I get water and an ester. And like I said, bio-based feedstocks, so very attractive on that. An ester that you might commonly come across is biodiesel. So that is a lot of times some sort of seed oil or corn oil and methanol. Right. And so plant-based, everybody like, you know, clean, green, what's not to like about it? You know, we do use these. These can be fairly expensive materials, though. You know, there's sometimes a cheaper way to go after some of these things. Mm -hmm. But big picture, there's a few advantages and there's a few disadvantages. One of the things I like about ester-based lubricants is I generally see that they tolerate cations pretty well. They work in more saturated environments. So a lot of the lubricants that are really good with like calcium brines, that sort of thing, they're more than likely going to be esters. Interesting. Okay. So the irony, you know, when we talk about lubricants is the ones that are the most compatible don't always seem to perform the best. And the ones that are least compatible perform the best, but tolerate the least stuff. Yeah. Esters tend to be expensive, perform pretty well and tolerate a lot of stuff. Right. They kind of have the full package, but they don't excel in any which area. It's kind of like, it would seem if there's several unknowns in the environment, that would be kind of a good go-to, unless you have like an exact idea of like what fluid and, you know, maybe you have a lot more control on your base fluid, call it a brine or whatever. But yeah, if you're kind of going with some unknowns, this kind of would probably give you your your best shot or at least lowest risk. But again, and I know that the lubricant game and we test dozens upon dozens upon dozens of different lubricants. Would you say just in general, most lubricants on the market are ester-based or is it really a mixed bag? It's a mixed bag. I'd say there's not as many. And generally, my experience and observation is when I look at the cost of it, if it's pretty high, it's probably ester-based, just kind of in the relative scattering of things. But you have that environmental footprint. You have a lot of those other things where if you're working in an area that's sensitive or what, it may be your go-to just off of that alone. You know you're in a pretty good space with some of those products. Interesting. So before I move on, I just want to clarify inside my own head. So esters, they are part of the raw material that makes up a product, right? You're not going to have a product and location that's labeled ester, which I know the answer, but just in case someone's not familiar with, like it's a raw material used to create things, right? Yeah. So, I mean, it'll probably be blended with other stuff. And what you'll see if you're looking, like just Google ester-based lubricant for drilling fluids right? and see what comes up. There's different kinds, so on and so forth. Cool, cool. All right, so you talked about the benefits and some of the, you know, how it's created and stuff like that. Now, talk about the issues because it's, with every product, it always has its limitations, right? And so I think it'd be good to run through some of that. Yeah, so, I mean, one of the challenges is, like, this reaction can and will reverse. And let's say you're using it as a base oil, for example. If you encounter acidic or really basic conditions you can facilitate that. So, you know, the trap here is, let's say I encounter an acid gas and I need to, I want to hammer my ester-based invert emulsion with lime. Well, I could actually cause it to saponify. You can cause it to thicken, basically turn to wax, Mm. soap. And so that's something you really don't want to do. It's one of those where you've got like a natural concern about that if you're not sure what you're going to encounter and in it as a base oil and your fluid's going to thicken up on you. You know, with a lubricant, it might not be as big of a deal because it just isn't as a whole, con- look, it might blind your shakers, but the mud's not going to fall apart. Yeah. If it's your base oil, that's a pretty serious concern pretty quickly on. And 
So anytime you're going to hit any, same thing with lubricants though, if you hammer it with caustic, guess what's going to happen? And there's also a temperature limit associated with that. So above 250, you don't want to be playing with a lot of these products because the, that reaction will just happen. You know, higher temperatures accelerate things. Think about an ester-based lubricant. You might be able to get away with certain things for long enough because of just your sheer dilution, you know, relative to new additions versus what you lose over the shakers or stuck to solids or whatever. Yeah. You may not notice it as readily. However, if you have it in a high enough concentration and you're hot enough, this stuff's going to It'll happen quickly and it'll be very obvious to everybody what happened. So, I mean, thinking about being careful, not just with lime, but what about drilling green cement? Yeah. And so, like, you read a lot of the literature with esters and people are like, oh, just make sure you have a really big spacer with your cement or whatever. And it's like, that's not oil field safe enough for me. Like, yeah. all right, as long as we all agree, like, oh, that works when you're on alert. And then when you get complacent, you have a mess on your hands. And I think that's one of the reasons that... Besides the cost, there's a lot of reluctance for widespread adoption of this stuff. You just see sort of here and there people talk about it. Gotcha. And then I've read that some of these have pretty low aniline points, which I hadn't really thought through much. You know, we've talked about aniline point before, which is aniline is a very highly aromatic material. And the aniline point is basically the temperature at which this aniline will mix with the base oil. And so a lot of our customers say, hey, I got this load of trashy diesel or whatever, what's it look like? And one of the properties we measure is the aniline point because a lower aniline point means it's going to cause elastomers to swell. So like think a mud motor or something that could chunk out prematurely. So we do look at it. And if it's particularly low, that could be an area of concern. So these things do have that. They've been blamed on those failures. The stuff isn't used enough to really have a wealth of data to go on, but it's out there. Gotcha. And then our last little nightmare is we've encountered this a couple of times mm -hmm. in our past when people start throwing biodiesel and diesel, right? And so it's kind of interesting because if you heat the diesel up in a caustic solution, this gunk starts coming out of it mm. and that's your biodiesel. But if you have these weird like thickening episodes and other sort of bizarre behavior in a conventional diesel-based mud, it may have some of this stuff and you don't encounter it all the time, but it happens and that's saponification. You can detect it by intentionally causing it, but it can also be happening in your well. Mm -hmm. And so it's something, if we have one of those weird head scratchers, it's something we look at pretty quickly. Right. So. Yeah, no, I recall kind of running through that episode, not full on episode, but just when we ran through that and yeah, it was a little bit of a kind of a witch hunt, but once we determined it, it was it made everyone on alert for future <laughs> episodes. But yeah, no, I mean, again, there's always things to consider. Issues can come up with certain products and it's important to understand them, especially, you know, when you deploy it in the field, there's just no telling that, you know, what can come at you, what kind of contaminants, what kind of, you know, again, someone has some harebrained idea to add something to the fluid and next thing you know, it's causing issues with something. And again, I think it's important to highlight all of that. Again, not too many questions beyond that, Matt. I think we covered most of it. Any sort of closing last words or something else that we should consider? This stuff hasn't been used a ton. Most of it has been done as kind of a one-off thing. And the hard part there is if you research these things, they sound exciting. Like, oh my gosh, we have a new feedstock for base oil. It's biodegradable and has some of these other really great characteristics. And a lot of that is in principle true, but there are these limitations that you have to acknowledge as well, and they don't necessarily show up in some basic lab testing. Yeah. So you see a lot of sort of academic perspectives towards this when in all reality, the reason you don't have widespread adoption, especially as a base oil, is because there's a lot of gotchas. 
I'm a big fan of ester-based lubricants in the right environment. Right. But once again, you need to make that very clear to everybody that's using it when the right time and place and conditions are. Yeah. So I guess the thing is you probably don't come across it a lot, but they talk a big game when you do. And just keep in mind, be as skeptical and cynical as me when you read that. (laughs) And if you do, then you likely come across things that can avoid headache down the road. But no, I think, again, I think it's good to dive into this kind of stuff. Like you said, it's not super common, but again, important to know nonetheless. If you have any thoughts or questions out there or experience with esters, maybe you're an ester guru, let us know. And if not, folks, please review, subscribe, share this with a friend, uh, fellow mud engineer, Hit us up at the Flowline Podcast at AESFluids.com. Reach out to us on LinkedIn. Connect with AES Fluids on LinkedIn. We've got a ton of good content that we continue to pump out. Also have YouTube with our tech tips. And yeah, just look forward to providing more information and education on the drilling fluids front. And until then, take care, folks. Take care. Thanks for listening. Please tune in next week for another exciting episode of the Flowline. And remember, may your returns always be full and your trips always smooth. Views expressed in this program belong to participants and not their employees. The program is for informational purposes only and cannot take the place of seeking professional advice. Copyright AES Drilling Fluids.